Welcome to the Turd Nerds. We are the functional gastroenterology podcast discussing all things poop. Before we take the plunge into today's episode, let us tell you a bit about ourselves. I'm Dr. Rebecca Sand, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist, and I specialize in all things gastroenterology, hormones, and fertility. I'm Dr. Ami Kapadia, and I'm a medical doctor trained in family medicine and functional medicine with a special interest in gastrointestinal health, food and environmental allergies, and autoimmune disease. And I'm Dr. Alana Gurvich, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist who is board certified in naturopathic gastroenterology. I specialize in inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, and other functional digestive disorders. Let's jump into today's episode. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and not intended to diagnose or treat any diseases or conditions. Please consult your doctor before incorporating any of this information into your care. The information presented on this podcast is not medical advice. So part two, more questions about EPI. We realized we had more to ask. We have have more. So I'm going to jump in before Dr. Sand. Okay, go. go. For it. So my question was the people you're getting off of the enzymes by the end of the year or however long it takes, typically you're working on various forms of dysbiosis as well as kind of just everything we do in integrative and naturopathic so, medicine. So, you know, by the nature of who we are, we're always looking at underlying cause. You don't want to just keep them on the product for the rest of their life? I don't think it's, I think while it's a great financial structure for the drug company, I don't think it's a great financial structure for okay, the patient. Uh, and I'm not being funny. This it's not, There are times when I see this drug coming back as $12,000 a month. Oh yeah, no, I know. Yeah. And then I switch them to the supplement. But that's but, also $40 to $60 right, a month, depending on how much they're taking. Right. And who is only taking one product? Right. Okay. So when I'm when I'm talking about how do I get them off, right? Always looking for underlying causes. Do they have fungal overgrowth? Do they have uh, bacterial overgrowth? Do they have protozoa parasites or worms? What is their lifestyle like? Do they sleep? Do they eat like a robot or do they eat like a human? Do how tightly wound are they? Because remember, digestion, including digestion for pancreatic uh, secretions, mm-hmm. is based on being in the parasympathetic state. Mm-hmm. Who eats in the parasympathetic state in today's world, right? right? So all of that lifestyle stuff really matters. So that's the first thing. The second thing is underlying causes and pathogens. If you clean up the pathogens, the pancreas will often function. There also is a piece of it where when you just give the pancreas some rest, it can actually reboot itself and make itself work again. Okay, great. And my favorite thing to do, probably almost across the board for almost all supplements last, not drugs, but almost- I like to go three months, take a break. Yeah, is totally. it back? Let's keep going. Is it done? You're done. Right. I like three months and a break. Do you do an abrupt stop or do you? I do an abrupt stop. Hmm. And you know, sometimes that's the information that I get back yep. is, oh, maybe we should just lower your dose. Right. The other piece of that is that um, oftentimes uh, with EPI, they'll know within a matter of days if right. it's too soon. That's what I see. Yeah. 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 And I'm always like, you can add it back in. Let's just yeah. do an experiment and see how you do. And then if they start developing abdominal pain, that's a clue to me that the dose is too high. Right. 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 And other side effects you've seen besides abdominal pain, if the dose is too high, it just either works or it doesn't work? Generally, yes. Okay. I've seen some nausea, but it goes away. I've Maybe I've seen nausea once, maybe twice. And yeah. this is a drug I prescribe a lot. Yeah. 
And there's no evidence that it can promote gastritis or anything like that, given we're I've, giving enzymes. I haven't seen it, and it's okay. not on the list of side effects that we see. Mm -hmm. And I can understand theoretically how it could. Any concern about folks with autoimmune predispositions? So I see that those people are more likely to have some kind of EPI, especially that autoimmunity is in the GI. Mm. And remember, like autoimmune patients, like celiac patients or Crohn's patients, this could, depending on where their disease is and the severity, this could just be a part of their disease. Right. It's one of these things that is, so uh, EPI often travels with other digestive disorders. Mm -hmm. What about giving pig products to folks with autoimmune? Surprisingly, I did learn, I know when we talk about thyroid, right. you know, I was warned, like, be careful with animal-based thyroid replacement for people with autoimmune thyroiditis, but there's definitely people with autoimmune thyroiditis who do better on animal-based products than I know, know it's one of those versions. things I feel like I learned too, but clinically, it's not what I see. Yeah. I will say that I know exactly where I learned it. And uh, the person I learned it from is a genius. He's exceptionally smart, but not necessarily the best clinician. Mm. And so I can understand the theory, but that theory did not, for me, play out clinically right. either. Yeah. And when we're talking about dosing for the over-the-counter supplement uh -huh. versions, I learned from a very smart doctor, Sand, um, that you can sort of get an equivalent dosing. It's quite high, I feel like, in the three to five to six capsule range. To, to be equivalent to one of the prescriptions? Do either of you have So I can tell you there are two products. I don't think we can. Okay, so there are two products. One of them, two pills is 17,000 units of lipase, and the other one, two pills, I think it's either 20 or 25,000 pounds. So how does that, how does that compare so, to the So uh, at the moment, the drug companies, you know what happens is they run out of their patent and they make a higher dose and then okay. they push a higher dose, right? Okay. So at the moment, they're pushing their 36,000 or 40,000 equivalent, depending on what company you're looking mm -hmm. at. And um, last time before their patent ran out, they were pushing their 25,000 or 20,000 equivalent. So it would be so two to four-ish? So it would be two to four pills okay. with meals, yep. um, possibly higher or lower depending on need. And I like I'm still confused about how we figure out dosing and like the factors that go into dosing. I have looked in the past at um, tests, like how low their their elastase levels are. I mean, I think that's as good a place as any to start. You're confused because there is not anything mm -hmm. solidly to hang your hand on. <laughs> like, I mean, that's why the reality is you start them is it working? Yeah. Go up, go down, right. look at the calculator, double, triple, depending on the calculator says, don't go over the calculator. Cause right. I think that's kind of borderline malpractice, yeah. uh, knowing full well that when they release their next series of products in five years, you're going to go over the calculator because everything's going to change, yep. but don't go over the calculator. But the calculator, like I, I had a patient who was like 120 pound female and I looked at the calculator for her and her dose was somewhere between 25 and 150,000 exactly. units. Exactly. Yeah. And is the calculator weighing in cystic fibrosis or not? No. Yeah. So uh, I don't think so. I don't think so either. Yeah. I've looked. So I have a patient who has chronic diarrhea with urgency. It's gotten somewhat better with treating dysbiosis, but my, as you, as you both know, my original teaching was always go after a root cause. And I, I was a little bit late to the boat on symptom management, and this is more than symptom management. So we have been trying him on enzymes the past year. They were over-the-counter enzymes. There's been no change with three to four to five of the over-the-counter. So can I pretty much rule out EPI? Okay. So my first, like, so I hear that case, right? And my mm -hmm. first thought is, when was he scoped last? Has anybody ruled out microscopic colitis? Has anybody ruled out inflammatory bowel disease? So he did have a full GI workup. I have to check when the last scope was. 
Um, and we're going to do an episode on microscopic colitis. But let's assume those have both been ruled out. Uh, I would try the drug. Even though the dose is the same? I would try the drug just because, you know, depending on who you talk to with the drugs, like the, the, the supplement products are just veggie capped. Right. Right. And so theoretically, that supplement product is dissolving in the small intestine, sorry, in the stomach. And the stomach is probably breaking it down somewhat before it goes into the small bowel okay. where you actually need it. Right? right. So then I would start with a drug, especially one of the drugs that's pH balanced to dissolve in the duodenum. Okay. And I would give that a go. And that's both of the commercially available Those are, uh, okay. there's, I think, the, I think there's five commercially oh, okay. available preparations. Okay. Yeah. I, we've used two. Um, okay. And, um, so th then the next thing you want to do is if they're meeting a steatorrhea picture, because that's the question, do they meet that steatorrhea? Because not everyone with diarrhea does. Because not everyone with diarrhea is having a fat malabsorption diarrhea. Mm -hmm. If they're meeting a steatorrhea criteria, at that point, you give them the the, right. the drug, the bilacid sequestrant. Yeah. And we would, we would determine uh, steatorrhea, as we talked about previously, by often clinical symptoms, because we're not going to do the 24-hour stool collection. Right. Okay. Right. And you can theoretically do a fecal fat stool collection, right. but that's not the qualitative. Right. But that doesn't, that can miss like right. a lot of people. And do you think the average patient who is going to a GI doctor, you'll probably get into this more in the future, are they ruling out microscopic colitis? So this is an interesting thing for me. I'm going to say it depends on the gastro. Okay. I have one patient in particular who, uh, oh my God, this guy, uh, probably I'm like his 60th physician, either gastro, naturopath, functional medicine, like whatever. Uh, he has atrocious diarrhea, but he was just very phobic of gastros. And so he hasn't been back to a gastro for like a decade, but he's still having the same diarrhea he had a decade ago. And I sent him to the gastro, to a group that I like. Right. And I wrote them notes saying, I'm sending you to rule out microscopic colitis, but the gastro kind of zonked out. You know, he's on a uh -huh. procedure every 15 minutes. Yeah. He saw that this is a man that was over 65. So he was like traditional colonoscopy, oh, no. did not do any biopsies. No. Did not do, they put him under, he had to do the prep, tortured oh, him, you know what I mean? Guy. And so should they be looking for microscopic colitis? Yeah. But let's be honest, the three of us treat a lot of patients. It's hard to remember what you're doing when right, you're treating right, a lot of patients. Right. So it should be in their field of vision. Okay. And oftentimes, and by the way, this patient also, before he went under, said to the gastro, remember, we're screening no. for microscopic colitis. Yeah. The gastro just zoned out. No. Yeah. Oh. So to so kind of summarize that, in patients with chronic diarrhea, we, of course, always want to rule out inflammatory bowel disease, microscopic colitis, which we're going to talk more about, bile acid malabsorption, EPI, pancreatic lactose intolerance. What else? Uh, anything, anything with the microbiome. Uh, CFO, CFO. Those are well within what we most of us think about, I think. But so that would be like a good summary. And the other sort of thing I can't figure out is why are patients not getting tested for fructose and lactose intolerance routinely with breath tests these mm. days? So they are. It depends on who you go to, okay. right? So it, within the alternative medicine community, the easiest access that we have for our test is lactulose or glucose, right? right. However, you could absolutely also order fructose and um, lactose. And uh, you have you can't do more than one solvents okay. per test. Okay. And a lot of these solvents each either need you fasting or they need you um, uh, provoked. And so, like that's the question. You kind of have to prioritize. So, can we run those tests on the machine we have? The fructose and lactose and uh, lactose breath test. Is I the, don't is it know. The same breath test. I, I it's question? well, it's definitely a different reagent. Right, right. But I don't know if the I don't. Is... I also I don't know. Okay. 
because I feel like that should be routine and I feel like we don't we don't do it because I've definitely I, I think it's just I think it's similar to cumbersomeness you have to go in three days in a row do or or, th or three days over the course of a week every right. other day right, right. it's cumbersome require a prep diet or not right so that would be good for us to know have on the radar yeah yeah i mean that's the problem is i think the cumbersomeness and so that's why we you know whenever we talk about anything the history is by far the most important right and you're trying to see what you're listening for so on sort of on that note i'm a little bit more curious about diet with these folks like do they come in talking about diet issues restrictive foods or foods they're restricting because it manages symptoms better like high fat meals, fried foods. And then do you find any role with diet in treatment? So I will say that these patients will, so they don't have pain. Mm -hmm. And that's like a thing, you know what I mean? Like it, you're very, very motivated to decrease or change your diet if there's pain, right? right? Uh, there's the, no fullness, early satiety, bloating. There's definitely fullness or early satiety and bloating. Okay. There's definitely not diarrhea, pain. not pain. Okay. Uh, I will say that historically speaking, I do often see these patients self-selecting to not eat fat or decrease the fat in their diet because that is often a very clear trigger. Or they will say, oh, I went out for wings and I had the usual diarrhea. You know, I call it, you know, Tumbuktu, whatever diet. Like they'll often notice it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, does, can diet affect symptoms? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the other side of that is, it's like they can basically be down to eating nothing right. just because they're afraid of getting the diarrhea, mm -hmm. which also, you know, when going back to fat soluble vitamins, like that's a big deal if you're not absorbing your fats. Mm -hmm. So is there any difference between folks eating fats paired with fiber versus just straight like fried foods, fast foods? Sometimes. Okay. I mean, I would think they'd feel bad just every time they eat because they're not secreting any of the enzymes properly. But clinically, you, you're saying you see more, potentially more of an issue with fats than yeah. other macronutrients? Yes, for sure. And um, I think that they just feel bad. But remember, there's a severity gradient, right? Mm -hmm. So the mild patients, it's like kind of more sporadic when they really push it. And right. the severe patients can't eat anything. And so that, I mean, that's a good sort of clue because we usually think of with other overgrowths like protozoa, SIBO, SIFO, they typically don't do with carbohydrates. So if we are clinically seeing a little bit more of issues with fats, that could be a good tip off. That is incredibly insightful. That is incredibly insightful. Yes, that is correct. When you are seeing that fat malabsorption, steatorrhea stool, you are generally thinking EPI or bile acid malabsorption. All right. And, you know, microscopic colitis that, you know, the, it's so interesting. Like when I think about diarrhea, like I, I feel like I have this intimate relationship with diarrhea, especially mm -hmm. when I'm asking my patients, like, is it a watery diarrhea? Is it like a more porridge like diarrhea? Do you have steatorrhea? Are you cleaning your toilet bowl again and again? Yeah. Are you belching? Does it start up or high? Does it like microscopic colitis is going to be a very different diarrhea uh -huh. than an EPI or bile acid malabsorption diarrhea. Okay. And then all of these conditions have gradients and severity. And so that needs to go into your thinking. All right. So I feel like back in the day when my mentors were practicing, it made sense to just go after the root cause because you could actually fix it. <laughs> and now it's like, it takes several years to fix the root causes. So it makes sense to treat the symptoms and the the downstream effects because it's going to take so long I mean, to fix the underlying causes. I have to say, in my experience, I get better compliance and better right, faith right. in my work right. if I go under after symptoms yes. and then explain why we also need to treat the underlying causes. I think that's a good point. I also have the patients that are like, I feel horrible, but I'm not going to do anything unless it's like treating the underlying cause. And that's become very frustrating because 
sometimes we can't treat the underlying cause until there yeah. other these downstream effects are a bit stabilized, like everything we talked about. Plus, we'll do an episode on MCAS histamine intolerance, which some people just are opposed to medications. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes challenging. But yes, it does seem to, I feel like most people, if they're feeling a little better, they'll be more likely to stick with it because it is going to take, I keep changing on my paperwork. We'll be working together for this many months. Oh no, we're going to be working together. Now it will be several years Yeah, is what I changed it to I mean, because it's going to take that long. I don't know about you, but the majority of my patients have been feeling sick for a long time, like decades. But somehow some people still have an expectation of a more immediate turnaround yeah months time frame and i think it's important to culture set it's our fast you know fast food nation but it's important yeah. to set expectations so so in your experience what are the top um underlying causes that you actually see clinically so inflammatory bowel disease probably self-selected because of the nature of my practice right. uh bacterial overgrowth and fungal overgrowth upper right. gi issues and then i will also say lifestyle plays a role mm -hmm. like i am not being funny we do not we think we live as if we're robots yeah. and our physiology is excessively complicated and very very tuned in with our balance of sympathetic and parasympathetic but our lifestyle is just very sympathetically dominated yeah for sure we got to pay attention to that probably in everyone um i am a little bit confused about the diarrhea picture because i have had low elastase in constipation folks who have gotten better with yeah enzymes so that's an interesting thing which i have also seen in those patients if we're honest i am not comfortable i am not as comfortable using the pharmaceutical pancreolipase yeah i feel significantly more comfortable using herbal supplementation with some pancreolipase amylase protease in there right. but also working on the brush border so could it be that those folks have a motility disorder and epi i mean epi likes to travel with a lot of other back with a lot of other yeah. disorders so in the case of someone having an underlying cause of perhaps methane positive SIBO and epi or cfo right because i don't know i know that when dr kapadia did her cfo incredible our first three episodes Ooh, they, they were like the amazing. best that's what like hooked me into this podcast um when she did uh that she talks about how when she sees cfo it's a lot of diarrhea yeah. but i well, see CFO. i see a lot of constipation in the research they saw diarrhea got right? it that makes sense yeah because I that's I see a lot of constipation yeah, with my CFO people. I do too. Constipation I about bloating. research if they're just targeting diarrhea folks or if diarrhea folks are better reporters than yeah, constipation folks. I, I feel like it was the one the the articles I looked at were for IBS patients across the board. So I don't think they were selecting for diarrhea, but I'm not sure in other studies. Yeah. I also will say if you have talked to enough patients, the diarrhea, the definition of constipation right. alters greatly from patient yes, to patient. Big time. And oh no, it's normal. Right. I poop one time every 10 days. That's yeah. normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. I had another question that I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find the elastase on our functional medicine tests to you? I know you've mentioned they may not be as accurate as the standard um lab tests for fecal elastase elastase i find very accurate on both Across functional yep both okay. functional and uh okay, regular lab tests do you ever retest always okay. well not i'm not gonna say always i'm not gonna say always uh i will retest um if they've been on a treatment plan for a long time and then we pull them off mm -hmm. and they are not better yeah i kind of want to figure because you know we're like I usually think of EPI as traveling with another disorder, right. right? And so I am often looking at what does the other 
like, is this still the main problem yeah. or are we dealing with something else now? I, a little bit different note, I, I have had patients who had very low elastase on stool tests, like a six, four, something like that. And they're, um, you know, they were perhaps with an insurance that didn't allow me to prescribe um, and set them back to their gastro. Their gastro immediately did pancreatic imaging. So hmm. you're looking for a con uh, um, you're looking for like pancreatitis or right. or pancreatic cancer, right? Like that's appropriate. Is that right. part of your standard workup when the elastase is below a certain threshold? I feel like I have to match symptoms with um, presentation mm -hmm. with objective findings, and it's always in my thinking. Okay, so that's an important point. If you're starting to check elastase on patients and mm -hmm. it's significantly low, um, in the absence and, of diarrhea, and just or remember, in the absence of diarrhea, you may want to consider imaging. Just remember, pancreatic cancer is often diagnosed very late right. when it metastasizes. Right. Mm -hmm. So that absolutely needs to be in your thinking. Yeah. So it would be good to know at some point to talk about okay, when do we pursue imaging in someone with a low fecal elastase? I mean, I think I, I don't feel like there's a magic cutoff. Okay. I feel like there is a really proper workup. How long have they been dealing with this? How severe are their symptoms? Have they had any recent red flag signs recently? Right. Weight of typical, yeah, the typical thing yeah, that we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good but I will say know. that, yes, I absolutely agree. A very low elastase warrants a further workup. And potentially then check an amylase lipase and imaging. And then take a take a blood amylase lipase, yeah. a serum amylase mm -hmm. lipase, yep, and imaging, correct. Okay. And you know, that's imaging is often an ultrasound. They don't go to CT for that? I think the I've gastros only I've seen been, do CT. So maybe I'm wrong. For acute pancreatitis, we would always get a CT. Um, but yeah, so we'd have to we'd have to look, but probably CT. Last question, what do you think the overgrowth is doing to affect the pancreas? Do you think it's just up upward signaling that's messed up? Uh, so I don't have any data. So okay. I'm I'm basing this on my opinion. I think that because of the bacterial overgrowth, the entire neurologic communication network is not functionally optimally. Okay. All right. And there probably is something microbiome wise. I mean, when isn't there exactly. something microbiome wise? <laughs> I'm just gonna put a little um, bookmark in there for future research. It's just it. You know, it's really hard right now. It's just our our human. We're just so complicated. Everything that yeah. we do and. You know, we, we didn't even talk in this episode about all of the things that de deregulate our neurological and hormonal communications. Yep. Remember, the small bowel has something like a hundred different hormones that are signaling for digestion. All of that mm -hmm. also gets interfered with as well. Like, mm -hmm. And then plus, these patients generally have a fat malabsorption. So there's also some hormonal changes that way. Right. Like, it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling right. prophecy. A yep. So that's what's hard. Yep. Okay. I think that's all we've got. I'm so glad we did a part two. <laughs> Turns out we had way more questions Lots than we questions. thought. Yeah. Okay, guys. See you soon. Okay. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Stay tuned. We release episodes every two weeks. If you like this episode, please subscribe. And don't forget to rate and review us to help spread the turd nerd word. Eee! <laughs>